Amen. Wow, wow, wow. Honestly, I don't need to pray us in because we've had this amazing prayer. Thank you so much, music team. Yeah, thank you. Thank you, thank you. Um, Let's come together now and uh, hear some scripture from Matthew 5. You all heard that it was said to the ancient ones, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I myself say to you that the one who is repeatedly angry with his brother will be himself liable to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, you empty-headed idiot, will be liable to the head council. And whoever says, you worthless fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Therefore, when you are offering your gift upon the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave behind your gift at that place before the altar and go and be reconciled to your brother and then come and offer your gift. Be quickly favorable to your opponent while you are with him on the way, lest the opponent hand you over to the judge and the judge to the officer and you get thrown into prison. Truly I say to you, you will not come out of that place until you repay the last penny. Who here is familiar with improv theater? Excellent. You may have seen this type of acting on the TV show Whose Line Is It Anyway? or Saturday Night Live or in, you know, one of the thousands of theaters here in Los Angeles. Improvisational theater or improv means making up the story as you go. The audience might shout out a setting or a character, and the actors are challenged to take that prompt, however strange or weird it might be, to come up with an entertaining skit right before your eyes. It's a tough skill. I mean, think about how awkward politicians are when they have to answer unexpected questions on TV. It's like that. (laughs) One of the key strategies for success in improv theater is a commitment to the yes and I'm getting ahead of myself. There we go. Yes, and improv actors are trained to say yes to any suggestion or curveball thrown at them from the audience and then add their own ideas. For example, the audience tells you to make up a skit about an alien's birthday party. Yes, and Let's have the party hosted by Marlon Brando. Why not? You want me to act like I have cacti stuck to my feet? Yes, absolutely. And I can wait to tell you about how I got lost in the desert. The key to successful improv is saying yes to the unexpected. We say yes, and then we build the story around whatever information we have. It's a skill built entirely around yes and... We've talked the past few Sundays about the opening sections of Jesus' Sermon on the Mount, and we've heard how Jesus declares us blessed before giving us new tasks. We've heard about how we are called to be the salt that starts the fire, which illuminates the work of God in others. And now, 
the hard work begins. In the verses we'll study in the next few weeks, Jesus is offering six antitheses or developments in Jewish law that would have been super basic and familiar to his Jewish listeners. Our focus today is the first of these six. It's Jesus's version of the yes and strategy of improv theater. He says yes to the entire scene that God has given to Israel and expands the story. However, when we study this scripture, we often hear Jesus's words presented as yes, but. That understanding likely comes from this verse, uh, Matthew 5, 17. Do not think that I have come to abolish the law or the prophets. I have come not to abolish, but to fulfill. And we sometimes hear this verse described like the Jews had a version of an outdated legalistic code that was thankfully wiped clean by Jesus. And we sometimes hear that because we have Jesus, the Old Testament is no longer relevant to us. I don't think that's a fair reading of this verse. The but is not a replacement. I have not come to erase, but to supplement. I have not come to replace, but to enrich. I have not come to subtract, but to add. Not abolish, but fulfill. It's a movement of addition. Jesus affirms the value of the law his audience already knows and speaks additional meaning into it. Let me show you what I mean. You all heard that it was said to the ancient ones, you shall not murder and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. We're likely familiar with the Old Testament scripture that Jesus is quoting here. You shall not murder. It's one of the 10 commandments in Exodus. And God is speaking in Exodus to Moses on Mount Sinai and tells him how the Israelites should set up their new community. The Israelites have just fled slavery in Egypt and are now figuring out what their freedom in God will look like. They're figuring out how to set up this new world of a people directed by and liable not to the powers of the Egyptian empire, but liable to God's will. And an element of that community, understandably, is the basic guarantee of life. Do not kill one another. And as straightforward as that might sound to us, is it? Can we honestly look around our world and say with confidence that all human lives are respected? Can we say that we preserve the lives of our sisters and brothers with the unquestionable certainty that God declares? It wasn't necessarily a given in Israelite time either. If you have a Bible, uh, turn with me to Exodus 21, verse 12 and following. Exodus 21. Whoever strikes a person mortally shall be put to death. If it was not premeditated, but came about by an act of God, then I will appoint for you a place 
to which the killer may flee. But if someone willfully attacks and kills another by treachery, you shall take the killer from my altar for execution. The Israelites in the wilderness lived in a state of chaos. They were a suddenly free people struggling to hear God's instructions on how to build their new community. And these hardline instructions in Exodus on how to deal with murder reflect some of that desperate need to impose order on a young community. Staying in relationship or covenant with God required some forceful consequences because that new community was fragile. Any disruption by violence or infighting could have destroyed the whole project. So the seriousness of what is at stake, the potential failure of God's people to get it right is reflected in the severity of the punishments. There also weren't that many Israelites in the wilderness. So killing one member would have been a huge blow to the tight kinship developing between the Israelites and was also a distancing from God. Anyone found guilty of premeditated murder was to be taken away from God's altar. So back to Matthew. I'll read part of it again and listen for what sounds familiar to the Exodus passage we just heard and what seems different. You all heard that it was said to the ancient ones, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I myself say to you that the one who is repeatedly angry with his brother will be himself liable to judgment. And whoever says to his brother, you empty-headed idiot, will be liable to the head council. And whoever says, you worthless fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. Therefore, when you are offering your gift upon the altar, and you remember that your brother has something against you, leave behind your gift at that place before the altar. Go and be reconciled to your brother. So what is Jesus doing here? What is the yes and what is the and? To fulfill does not mean to nullify. Maintaining neighborly love, the strong, respectful bonds between people is a central theme of Jewish law. Dietrich Bonhoeffer describes the golden rule as the centrifugal force of God's people. It's the pillar that holds all of the spinning pieces together. That's right. At this section of his sermon, Jesus does not just say, don't commit murder, but do not insult your fellow human. Do not put someone down and elevate yourself. The commandment already prohibits the severing of relationships through death. The law already prohibits a person from declaring their mortal authority over another life in the literal sense. Jesus begins this presentation of yes and with the warning against severing relationships with the weapons of pride. This is 
one of those moments where getting to study the Greek language of the New Testament is really rewarding for me uh, because I got to read up on just how insulting those Greek insults would have been at the time. And it sort of would be like if I read from today's average Facebook comment section about the same level. So the words empty-headed idiot are not literally in the Greek version. Um, the Greek swear word just doesn't resonate with us in 2018. So I spiced up the language a little in my translation uh, to try and convey the abusive quality of the language that Jesus warns us against. In this new community Jesus is proclaiming, in this newly fulfilled reality, in this new recommitment to covenant, metaphorically punching someone in the gut with your words shatters the community just like murder does. The Greek language is also clear that Jesus knows people are in the habit of doing this. It's habitual for us, he says, the one who is repeatedly angry will be liable to judgment. No longer can the covenant community survive just by not killing each other. Any blow against a person's knowledge that they are valued equally in the kingdom of God is a death in itself. So this is pretty challenging. We are all victims of anger and pride. None of us have lived lives in which we have never intentionally said hurtful things. So when we deny the dignity of a brother or sister, what should we do? Well, praise Jesus, we have some instructions. Jesus explains that, number one, we need to acknowledge the harm that we've done. Point blank. Repairing the covenant requires an awareness of the harm we have caused. It requires the downfall, in other words, of our own pride. Jesus doesn't say, if you are mad at your brother, go make amends. But if you remember your brother has something against you, go. And number two, stop the act of public piety and go make things right quickly. Forgiveness for the offense is to be sought by the offender before worship at the altar can properly take place. It is not a call to be completely pure of heart before you engage in public worship, but to fix the broken covenants between us as part of your approach to God. So we abandon our gift at the altar and we go to the person we've hurt to reconcile. Now, what does that mean? What does go and be reconciled actually mean? Reconciliation has become a bit of a modern buzzword, uh, usually used for people in power who want to apologize without doing a lot of self-reflection. We've heard the word tossed around so much that it can be hard to talk about without just tuning out. So let's go instead to a prophet that I think has some quality things to say about God's vision of reconciled community. The prophet Micah, who cried out against harmful systems people inflict on one another out of greed and pride. 
in Micah chapter 3, verse 5. Micah chapter 3. Thus says the Lord concerning the prophets who lead my people astray, who cry peace when they have something to eat, but declare war against those who put nothing in their mouth. Therefore, it shall be night to you without vision and darkness to you without revelation. The sun shall go down upon the prophets and the day shall be black over them. The seers shall be disgraced and the diviners put to shame. They shall all cover their lips for there is no answer from God. But as for me, I am filled with power with the spirit of the Lord and with justice and might to declare to Jacob his transgression and to Israel his sin. Hear this, you rulers of the house of Jacob and the chiefs of the house of Israel who abhor justice and pervert all equity who build Zion with blood and Jerusalem with wrong. Its rulers give judgment for a bribe. Its priests teach for a price. Its prophets give oracles for money. Yet they lean upon the Lord and say, Surely the Lord is with us. No harm shall come against us. Therefore, because of you, Zion shall be plowed as a field. Jerusalem shall become a heap of ruins and the mountain of the house a wooded height. If that's the bad news for prideful people in power who provide only for those who line their pockets and think their outward piety will protect them from God's justice, what is the alternative? What does Micah's vision of a reconciled, unselfish, humble community look like? Let's keep reading in chapter 4, verses 1 through 4. In the days to come, the mountain of the Lord's house shall be established as the highest of the mountains and shall be raised up above the hills. People shall stream to it. And many nations shall come and say, come, let us go up to the mountain of the Lord, to the house of the God of Jacob, that he may teach us his ways and that we may walk in his paths. For out of Zion shall go forth instruction and the word of the Lord from Jerusalem. He shall judge between many peoples and shall arbitrate between strong nations far away. They shall beat their swords into plowshares. And their spears into pruning hooks. Nation shall not lift up sword against nation. Neither shall they learn war anymore. But they shall all sit under their own vines. And under their own fig trees. And no one shall make them afraid. For the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. You can tell I love the minor prophets. I always feel like I'm hearing God's word for the first time. They shall beat their swords into plowshares and their spears into pruning hooks. Weapons of war will be remolded into gardening tools. What was once an instrument of war will become an instrument of nourishment. 
They shall all sit under their own vines and under their own fig trees, and no one shall make them afraid, for the mouth of the Lord of hosts has spoken. The fig tree and the vineyard are symbols of security and stability. They are images of long-term peace, where each person has the time and the resources to cultivate their own fruitful lives. There is no longer any fear of violence because God has spoken and we listened. Gregory Boyle is a Jesuit priest who serves youth and adults navigating their way out of gang life here in Los Angeles. He writes in his book, Tattoos on the Heart, that the principal sufferings of the poor are shame and disgrace. Suffering from a lack of compassion and a sense that they are outside the human family. Compassion, Father Boyle says, is a covenant relationship between equals. They shall all sit under their own vines and no one shall make them afraid. Yes, we do not kill. Yes, We shall not murder. Yes, we know violent death destroys communities. And we will not demean our sisters and brothers. And we will submit beneath our pride to recognize our brother has something against us. And we must abandon our gifts at the altars and go, taking the call to seek healing. And be quick to act favorably with our opponent along life's journey and the journey back to the altar. Be quick to act, for blessed are the peacemakers. Who do you know who will be famous in heaven? Put aside any questions we have about the geography of heaven, just for a second, and entertain me. Who do you know who will be famous in heaven? That's a bold claim there, Ted. But what is it about that person's actions that illuminate God's covenant? What would a world look like if that was the standard? If that person's life was replicated across every human relationship? Now, if this call to radical self-awareness and deference sounds impossible, you are in good company. At the end of Matthew 7, we hear that, quote, the crowds were astounded at his teaching. And the Greek word for astounded literally means struck with panic or shock, (laughs) which like, you know, feels appropriate after hearing all of these new expectations. It is admittedly a tall order. I want to share a story with you about the way that I've seen this practiced in the world. Have you ever heard an orchestra made up of only beginners? Maybe in elementary school playing Twinkle Twinkle Little Star? Yeah, it sounds pretty bad. It sounds pretty bad. This gown is all screechy and awkward, and sometimes you can't even tell what the song is that they're supposed to be playing. But the mere fact that beginning players have the courage and the gusto and the trust in their ability to create makes the music vibrate off the strings in a declaration of potential energy. Harmony takes practice. 
It takes months and months to learn how to match your note to the person playing next to you. As a former orchestra teacher, I can tell you that pitch relativity is one of the hardest things to teach. On a violin or a cello, every spot on every millimeter of string has a slightly different pitch. And that means when you have a group of beginners playing together, it's really difficult to get each player to play the same note. It's really hard to get each young hand to play on the exact same spot on their own strings. That's why beginning orchestras sound like paint splattering on your eardrums. Everyone might have the same sheet music in front of them, but each kid's hand hits the string at their own unique angle. One of the ways to get around this is to teach beginning players to assume that their pitch should always match their neighbors. You don't necessarily teach the players to find the correct pitch on their own because right and wrong doesn't mean very much in a collective context. I've found that an effective way to explain this to my students is if they notice their pitch doesn't sound quite like their neighbors, they should not elbow their neighbor into a new position or stop playing to shout at their neighbor, which was their favorite. But instead, it is their own responsibility to adjust their own finger to accommodate the difference in each note. It was to teach my kids never to flat out assume that they are the ones getting it right. When every kid bends towards each other, our song gains stability and cohesion. We can do hard things together. Jesus is calling us into this yes and place. Yes, life is sacred and murder is wrong. And the fulfilled covenant means that the bonds that weave together humanity and all creation are more tender than ever. Yes, pride destroys and humility heals. Yes, go quickly and be reconciled to your sisters and brothers and Do this as an act of worship before you come to the altar. Not abolished, but fulfilled. Not silenced through broken community, but gloriously vocal in declaration of our mutual responsibility. Yes, we are victim to pride. And... We are called to work hard to mend our broken covenants to one another. For we will not get out of our prison until we pay the last penny to those we have cheated. Leave behind your gift at this place before the altar and go. Be reconciled to your brother. Walk singing with him along the way back to the altar.